All right, well, good morning, everybody. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Trailhead, and uh, it is always a privilege to have the opportunity to open up the Word with you uh, and share what God has to say to us today. Today, we're continuing our series. We've been looking all summer long at the book of Psalms, uh, very different types of Psalms. Psalms is the songbook of the nation of Israel, and what we've seen as we've looked at all these different types of Psalms is that even though it's one God, and all these psalms are songs to the same God, as you, like a diamond, we've said, the, the metaphor we've used, it's like a diamond. As you turn it, you see different aspects of who that God is. So the same God, but we see him in so many different ways. This week, we're going to continue. Uh, we started, Steve started last week looking at a psalm of confession, and we're going to look at another one today. Um, so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon, but I want to get you caught up to speed just to make sure we're all on the same page to get started. Last week, we looked at Psalm 32, which is a psalm of confession, and here's what we saw in Psalm 32 last week. All conviction leads to a covering. Now, let me explain, because some of that's kind of like churchy words. Conviction is that feeling you have that sometimes it's like a gentle poke or a tap, sometimes it's like a, a, you know, a punch to your stomach, but it's that feeling that something's wrong. And it's that feeling that you've done something wrong. And there's a tension, and somehow that tension needs to be resolved, and that, we call that conviction. And we believe that that's God, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you and telling you, hey, there's something you need to deal with. And what we saw last week is that all conviction, anytime you feel that, anytime that that happens, it always leads to some kind of covering. Now, what we mean by that is you will do one of two things. You'll be covered. You'll cover over that conviction in one of two ways. Either, either, can we go to the next slide? Either you will try to cover yourself you feel conviction over something, you'll try to hide. You'll try to bury that, that sin, whatever it is that you feel guilty about, but that will ultimately lead to shame because ultimately it's still there. And as much as you try to hide it, as much as you try to bury it, it's still there and you'll just be feeling shame. Or either you'll cover yourself or, whoops, back, or you'll be covered by Jesus. And if your sin is covered by Jesus, instead of feeling shame, what you'll feel is forgiveness. What you'll feel is freedom. So what's the difference? And this is what we talked about last week. The difference between being your, your sin being covered by yourself or your sin being covered by Jesus is confession. That the thing that will lead to being, having your sins covered by Jesus is when you get honest, honest with God, Sometimes honest with other people around you, but honest about your need for a covering. And you stop trying to cover yourself and you instead go to God. And when you go to God in confession, what we said last week is that he will cover you and his covering is so, so, so much better. We try to cover ourselves and all we feel is more shame and more guilt when Jesus covers us, we feel freedom. We feel joy. And so last week we talked about that, and some of you, some of you stepped into that, into that discomfort, because confession is uncomfortable, isn't it? Bringing to light what you would much rather stay hidden, that's not a fun thing, 
right? So like, I love it when I get to preach about something that's really like, this is a fun one and I got a lot of jokes and this is gonna be like, everybody's gonna be smiling. We're talking about confession. It's not a lot of fun. I don't have a lot of jokes, I'm sorry, okay? But, but some of you last week stepped into that discomfort and what you found was that there is joy. Not that confession itself feels joyful, but the covering, the freedom that comes from having your sins covered by Jesus is joyful. But for some of you, and obviously some of you weren't here last week, but some of you, even some of you who were here last week, you hear all that and you think, yeah, that that sounds great for other people. But you think, but me? That's not possible. Because, because you say, Aaron, that all sounds great for other people, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad my sin is. There's no way I could ever confess this. That you have either because for so long you've been trying to cover it yourself, or just because you have become convinced that the magnitude of your sin, and maybe it's one individual thing that you did that thing and you believe that there is never ever going to be forgiveness for that. Or it's the accumulation throughout your life of every single, it feels like to you, every single choice and how wrong it is that you believe That if you were to confess, if people really knew what's in your heart, if people really knew the real you, there's no way you'd ever be forgiven. There's no way you could ever have joy. And you've convinced yourself the only way you're ever going to have any semblance of happiness, love, acceptance, is to make sure that all that stuff Or that thing, whatever it is, stays buried deep, deep, deep down inside. Nobody can ever know. So some people push back against the idea of confession because they think, I don't need to confess. What I've done isn't that bad. It's really not a big deal. But for a lot of you, your problem is not that you think what you've done is not that bad. You believe what you've done is too bad. You believe that that absolutely for sure you have gone beyond the limit. That you hear people talk about mercy and forgiveness and grace and those all sound great, but surely there's a limit and surely you have gone past that limit. And if anybody know, if anybody knew what's in your heart, if anybody knew what's in your past, There's no way they'd ever forgive you. There's no way they'd ever accept you. And when we talk about confession and we talk about forgiveness and we talk about joy, you start to feel hopeless. Believe it or not, that's the context of Psalm, the Psalm we're gonna look at today, which is Psalm 51. So I would like you to turn there with me Um, Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. Grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, let that Bible be our gift to you. We would love for you to take that and and let that become yours personally. 
If you're in one of those Bibles, we're on page 474. And as you're turning there, here's what I want you to hear. Okay, this is the main point. This is the bottom line. This is everything we're going to see today. There is no limit to God's grace. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is no sin too big and there is no sinner too bad for God's grace. Now, I'm jumping ahead when I say this, but here's what I want you to understand, and this is, like I said, this is the main point. There's no limit to God's grace because God's grace is not based on you. God's grace is based on Jesus. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 51, I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. So this is one of the rare psalms um, that we have that gives us the direct context of when and why this was written. So you see it right at the very beginning. It says, before verse one, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So it tells us who wrote it, David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. It tells us exactly when David wrote this psalm. And it's helpful and it's instructive to us because this is a a pretty, pretty big story. It's a pretty big turning point in the life of David. Okay, now we, we can't go through the whole thing uh, this morning. You can read the full story for yourself. It's in the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12, and I'd highly encourage you to read it yourself. Let me give you the context, at least what we need to know to understand what's going on here. Okay, at this point uh, in 2 Samuel 11, and when David then later writes this psalm, he's the king. He's the king of Israel. 
So he's one of the most powerful men in the world. He's definitely the most powerful man in the nation of Israel. And he uses, he abuses that power in his position to take advantage of a woman who's not his wife, but who is married to someone else. So her name's Bathsheba, her husband's name is Uriah, and he has sex with her and he gets her pregnant. And then he tries to, because this is like huge, major scandal, he tries to cover it up with this really elaborate scheme that doesn't work. And so just in desperation, he arranges things because he's the king and Uriah is a soldier in his army. He arranges things so that Uriah will be killed in battle, but not by accident, like intentionally sets it up so that Uriah will die. And then after Uriah dies, then he goes and marries Bathsheba and thinks, okay, now everything's covered. And then at the very end of 2 Samuel 11, there's this line, and it's like the understatement of the year. The writer of 2 Samuel says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah. And so in 2 Samuel 12, what happens is this prophet named Nathan comes to David and he confronts him and he basically sticks his finger in his chest and says, you have sinned. You have done something horrible, something terrible. And, and the way he does it and because he's empowered by God to speak, David hears it and David breaks. And David is just overwhelmed with his sin. And so what we have in Psalm 51 is the result of that conviction, that if you want to call it a rebuke, from the prophet Nathan, and ultimately that rebuke from God towards David for what he did, that David in his brokenness cries out to God for forgiveness. And so what we have in Psalm 51 is the, the record of David's cry of confession and his cry begging for forgiveness. Now, we, before we dig into this psalm, here's what we need to say because I want to say what you're thinking because I'm thinking the exact same thing. When you read this story, when you hear this story, what David did, David does not deserve forgiveness. He does not. Everything he does in this story, I mean, think about it. If you think about, because we do this thing, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit today, but we do this thing where we kind of rank this sin is worse than this sin, and this sin is worse than that sin. Whatever your idea of the worst sin is, there's a really good chance David did it in this story. He does about everything that we find morally reprehensible. And now he's coming and he's crying to God for forgiveness. And I would say, and you would say, all of us would say, David does not deserve forgiveness. So here's what I want, the first thing I want to show you in this psalm. David knows that. He knows. He knows how bad he is. He knows how undeserving he is. Look at, look at verse number three. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Have you ever felt that way before? You've done something wrong and it's all you can think about. It's right there always. It's ever before me. And I try to distract myself and I try to go do something else and I try to, you know, make myself feel better. I try to excuse it to, to, to 
you know, talk it away or it wasn't that. And it's always right there. It's always right there, David said. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, a lot of people have problems with verse 4. How can David say, against you and you only to God, against God only have I sinned, when he took advantage of a woman and murdered her husband, didn't he sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah? How can David say against you only, God, have I sinned? And I think this is important for us to understand. David is not saying in verse 4 that he didn't hurt, cause pain. Honestly, even, and this might, this is like language thing, but he could probably even say, we could probably justifiably say he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. But why then does David say against you only have I sinned? Here's what David's saying. Sin, the word sin We're talking about violating God's laws. If all David had done, all quote, all David had done was hurt other people, but it wasn't a sin against God, then he could explain it away. He could get, if, if his sin is not against a perfect and holy God, he could probably try to relativize it. There's somebody else who's worse. There's something they did where they kind of deserved it. You know, ultimately, if it's not against God, if it's between you and me, then I can figure out a way to make it where I'm not actually that bad. If it's against God, if David's sin, if my sin, if your sin is against God, there's no excusing it. There's no getting around it. There's no way of pretending it's not as bad as it actually is. David isn't denying the pain he's caused. He's not denying the injustice that he's committed. What he's saying in verse 4 is that what he's done is more than just a human conflict or a disagreement. What he's done is inarguably wrong. Because it's a sin against a holy, a righteous God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, the end of verse 4, what David's saying is, everything you've said about me is true. Your judgment against me, the conviction I'm feeling, the verdict you've declared over me that I'm guilty, it's true. There's no way of arguing against it. And with feeling all of that, Look at what he asks for in this next section. Verse, jump to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is begging to be made clean. Why? Because he feels dirty. Look at verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David is begging God, don't abandon me because he feels alone. He feels isolated. Look at verse 8. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's begging for joy because he feels despondent. He feels despair. David feels dirty, he feels isolated, and he feels despondent. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like something you've done is so bad, it's so heavy, all you feel is dirty, I'm stained, it will never be clean, I'm isolated, I'm alone, no one can ever see me, no one will ever care for me, no one will ever love me again, I feel dirty, I feel isolated, and I feel despondent, I have no joy. My sin is ever before me. It's always right there. I'm always seeing that sin. How can I ever feel joy? You can, you can feel that way about almost any kind of sin. But I, I want to say this morning that I know this to be particularly true when it comes to the topic of sexual sin. If there's a part of your story that involves sexual sin, and whatever that sexual sin is, premarital, extramarital sex, pornography, whether that's something from your past or it's something that's ongoing right now, whatever it is, if that's a part of your story, then you know exactly what it feels like to feel dirty, isolated, and despondent. Because there's something about sexual sin that carries so much weight. And we want to hide, but we can't hide from ourselves the feeling of feeling dirty, isolated, and despondent. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with this? Sadly, it feels like there are two options available to deal with sexual sin. Culturally, What we're told most often is the best way to deal with it, especially if you're feeling this way, especially if you're feeling dirty, is to deny that it's actually a sin. That the best way our culture will tell us, the best way to deal with feelings of guilt and shame centered around sexuality is to deny that there's anything wrong. That the reason you're feeling dirty, the reason you're feeling isolated, is because you're being weighed down by outdated morality. That you're letting other people infringe upon your freedom to be who you truly are, to do what you really want to do, and if you would just cast that off and stop worrying about it, you would feel freedom. It sounds really, really, really appealing. The problem is, it just doesn't work. Even... Like, even non-Christians know that that doesn't work. There's studies coming out all the time from non-Christian sources that show, like, specifically, studies about pornography, the harmful effects that it has on the people who use it and the people in their lives, the people who are a part of producing it, 
over and over and over again, our culture realizes and recognizes this is harmful. And as much as we want to say, as much as we want to say, no, this is just freedom, do what you want to do, it doesn't work. And you don't need a study to tell you that. Because you know, if this is something that is in your life, or has been in your life, that no matter how hard you try to deny it, at the end of the day, you feel dirty, and you feel isolated, and you feel despondent. But what's the alternative? If I can't just pretend everything is okay, if I can't just push back against God's ethics, then what can I do? Because the alternative feels like, it feels like, Okay, well, in church world, where we acknowledge this is sin, this is wrong, but it's like, it's a big sin. It's like a capital S sin. You can't talk about this. You've got to hide this. You've got to bury this. This is, if you speak up about this kind of sin, about any kind of sexual sin, then you will feel so much judgment, so much condemnation. Because surely, and this is what you tell yourself, surely I am the only person here who has this problem. That you look around and you're like, everybody else has this figured out. Because this is a big one. Nobody else has this problem. And if anybody else knew that I struggle with this, I, they would never even speak to me again. And so you hide it. You try to bury it down, and you try to fight, and you fight and fight and fight, but you keep failing. You can't deny it, but you feel alone, and you feel hopeless. Neither way works. Running away from God's ethics or trying to bury your sin out of shame, neither one works, and you know this. So here's what you need to hear, please listen. There is another option. There is hope. Please listen to me about this. You are not alone. If your story involves sexual sin in your past or in your present, you are not alone. All of us here all of us are sinners. Look at verse 5 in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, David is saying, I am a sinner from day one. And this is true of every single one of us. We are all sinners. Your sin is not unique. Right here in this room, there are men and women who face and have fallen to the exact same temptations that you face and have fallen to. There are men and women in this room who know exactly what you are going through. You are alone is a lie. Okay, I want to say this really clearly because it's a lie from your enemy. Satan wants you to believe 
that you are alone. Because the, the best strategy that Satan has against believers is to isolate them from other believers so that you feel shame and have no way to deal with it. You are not alone. We are all sinners. And when I say you're not alone, I don't just mean that other people have the same story, have the same struggles. I mean that you're not alone in your fight against your sin either. Okay, so please hear this. If you are currently struggling with sexual sin, you're not alone. And you don't have to face it alone. We are here as a church to walk with you. Not to judge you. Not to cast you out. Not to tell you that that sin is different than all the others and so you go over there and if you can get it fixed then you can come back to us. No, we are here to walk with you. This is a safe place to be able to confess your sin and we want to be a safe place to help you fight against your sin. So let me just throw this out here. If you're in this fight right now, currently, or if you want to fight against that kind of sin and you don't know where to start, we would love to help you get connected to resources and people who can help you. So right here, let me just say this. This is my email address. And if you just feel totally hopeless, and if you just feel like I, this is the sin that is weighing on me and I feel alone, you're not alone, and here's what I'm gonna tell you. Send me an email, totally confidential, but I would be honored, I would be honored to help you get connected with resources and people who can help you fight against this sin. You are not alone. And that feeling of isolation is a lie and it's a scheme of Satan to keep you trapped in your sin. Fight against it. But I want you to hear that there's more. There's more. You're not alone, and you don't have to be despondent either. We are all sinners, that's true. But we can be sinners saved by God's grace. And I want you to hear that. There is no sin too great for God's grace. Look, you can fight for victory over your sin. We want to help you with that battle. But it's not your victory, and it's not even the battle that will make you clean. You think, I think, I have thought and, and still find myself feeling this, the only way I'm ever going to feel clean is to find victory, to stop, completely stop, never sin again, and then I'll be clean. Sadly, while we can have victory over specific sins, none of us will ever be 100% totally free from sin in this life. But that doesn't mean that we can never be clean. Look at verse seven again, because I love the way it's phrased. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Do you see in verse 7, as David's crying out to God, who is doing the cleaning? 
David is not saying, when I clean myself up, then I will be acceptable to you, God. David's going to God and saying, on my own, I can't get clean. I need you. Only you can make me clean. The metaphor he uses here, it's kind of weird to us uh, in modern times, purge me with hyssop. Um, Hyssop was a plant that they used in ceremonies of sacrifice. They would dip it in blood and then use the, the hyssop to sprinkle blood on the sacrifices on the altar. It was symbolic. It was symbolic, calling back to a previous time in Israel's history. To them, it was symbolic of something from their past. To us, it's a symbol, and they didn't even know this. David didn't even know this when he's writing about this. But it's a symbol of something that was still to come in the future. For us, it's past. For him, it was future. And it's this. The only way we can be clean is to have our sins covered over by blood. Not our own blood, but Jesus' blood. The blood that Jesus shed when he was crucified. That it's that blood that covers over our sins and washes them clean. The covering, remember... All conviction leads to a covering. The covering that we try to do, not good enough, but Jesus' covering, when he covers over our sin, when he takes the punishment that we rightfully deserve, David doesn't deserve forgiveness, we don't deserve forgiveness. But Jesus gives us covering, the covering of his blood over our sin that washes us clean. And because, this is where we said we were going, and here it is, because that cleansing comes from Jesus, there is no sin, no sin that is too great for him to clean. None of us can clean ourselves, none of us, okay? If you're sitting there and thinking, yeah, but my sin is greater, here's what you need to understand. The smallest, what you would consider, you consider your sin to be so big, so horrible, that yourself to be such an awful sinner. Whoever you're comparing yourself to, whatever the sin that you think is lesser than yours, that didn't take as much of Jesus' blood or Jesus didn't have to die or whatever, no, all of it, all of it, we are incapable of cleaning on our own. All of it requires Jesus' blood. This is, Psalms is is great because it's very poetic. I want to make this absolutely super clear. I want to show you something from the New Testament. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. So this is in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, and he's not writing poetry. Paul does not write poetry, okay? He is like Mr. Legal Mind, and so here's how he says it. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. This is super important. There's only one way to be made right with God. There's only one mediator, one person, who can connect sinful people to a holy God. One, for everybody. There's not a different way to God 
for the really bad sinners and then a different way for the not as bad sinners. We're all the same. There's not a different way to God for those who have committed sexual sin and then a different way to God for those who have killed people and a different way to God for terrorists and a different way to God for people who grew up in church and a different way to God for people who don't know the order of the books of the Bible. It's not. It's all the same. The path to God is the same because there's one mediator. It's Jesus Christ. It's his blood. That's the only way. No matter how bad you think you are, the path from you to God is exactly the same as it is for me and as it is for everyone else in this room. It does not matter who you are, what you've done, or where you came from. You can be clean because there is no sin that is too great and there is no sinner that is too bad for God's grace. So, of course, the question is, well, how? How do I do that? There's one way. All I feel is guilt. I feel dirty and isolated and despondent. How do I feel forgiveness? How do I get there? Look, I want to jump down. We don't have time to go through this whole psalm this morning, so jump down to verse 16. For you, this is again, David is talking to God. Verse 15, if I back up, he says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for, because you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What is this saying? He's saying, I can't just do these rituals. The rituals themselves aren't what makes me feel clean. And so, let's start with that. If you are feeling dirty, isolated, despondent, disconnected from God, and you're like, tell me what to do, it's not about what you do. That's the first thing I want you to hear. But the sacrifices, verse 17, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's what David's saying. We receive grace by needing grace. We get cleansing from God by confessing that we need cleansing from God. This is the definition of confession. The word confession means to state the truth. The truth about my sin and the truth about God's grace. To be broken and contrite. To come to a place where I say, my sin is too much. I can't handle it. I can't fix it. I can't make myself clean. And to state the truth about God. But God, you can. Because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, you can make me clean. That's it. That's everything. When we come to the place of seeing the depth of our sin, and we cry out to God, that we need his mercy. He forgives us. He forgives us not because of anything we do, not because we have the right sacrifices, not because we say the right words, not because we dedicate our lives to changing and doing better. No, he saves us because 
Well, look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. When we come to a place where we recognize our brokenness, where we see the depth of our sin, God saves us because he loves us. If you are in a place this morning where you feel like your sin is too great, where you believe that what you have done is too bad, if you're in a place where you believe you have gone beyond the limits of what any person would ever forgive, then you are exactly in the place where you can receive God's grace. Because it's exactly that brokenness that qualifies you for God's grace. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that if you feel like you're actually pretty good and you don't need God's grace, that's much more dangerous. It's when you come to a place where you recognize how bad you are that you can look to God and see how good he truly is. We're going to move into a time of response. As we do that, if you have never cried out to God for mercy, why not now? If you've come to a place where you have recognized the depth of your sin, why not today call out to God and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner and I've tried to clean myself up and I can't do it. I need you because here's the promise and it's the promise of the New Testament. It's the promise of Psalms. It's the promise of God that when you come to him in your need, he will meet you. If you have believed the gospel, if you've called out to God and asked him to save you, and yet you're still feeling isolation, you're still feeling despondent because of some sin, if you've lost, as David says, in verse number 12, the joy of your salvation. You believe God saved you, but you feel no joy in it. Maybe, maybe today is time for you to cry out to him, to confess something that you've been holding inside, to ask God to let you hear, as David says, let you hear joy and gladness again. Every week at the beginning of our service, we have this part in our liturgy where we confess together. And it's very poetic. It's a very traditional, it comes from, from the history of the church, this way of calling out to God. I pray that it never becomes for us just an empty ritual, what David's talking about here at the end of this psalm. I pray that you actually come to God in your brokenness, in your need, and call out to him. And that when you do, you hear the words that we speak over you 
friends in Christ, know this. The mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting. Remember this surpassing grace. Believers in Jesus, you are forgiven. Let me pray. We'll take some time to reflect. Some time that you can call out to God, that you can confess to God. And then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father. God, none of us is good enough. On our own, none of us can stand. But God, we have a promise from you that because of your love and because of Jesus' sacrifice, that we can know freedom, we can know forgiveness, we can know joy. Father, God, please, my prayer today for Trailhead is that anyone who's here who believes that they are beyond the limits of your grace would call to you and that you would meet them in their shame and that you would cover them in your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.